All right. I'm here with uh, Ben Smith, who is the author of The Dope, The Real History of the Mexican Drug Trade, uh, which I just finished reading. And uh, Ben, thank you so much for uh, joining me, uh, for me to talk to you. No problem at all. It's a delight. Awesome. Um, so yeah, I mean, I reached out to a bunch of authors uh, and, and you were one of the few that responded. And uh, that was the reason why I picked up your book. Um, but I am so grateful uh, because I found it much more compelling and engaging and uh, gripping than I would have expected. It's, it's a history of the drug trade. I did not expect that would be something I would be so interested in. Um, but it was, it was, yeah, a really gripping uh, narrative that you managed to tell there. Uh, th thank you. That was the idea. I mean, I, uh, yeah, absolutely. This was not meant to be a kind of standard academic book. I mean, there's a lot of fairly academic works about the drug trade, both in Mexico and elsewhere. Uh, but I very deliberately attempted to write this. I've said it quite pretentiously in the past, but as a kind of noir history. So I read a right. lot of kind of James Elroy, uh, Dashiell Hammett, uh, Raymond Chandler before I wrote the book. And I attempted to kind of ape perhaps unsuccessfully, their kind of staccato style, short sentences, uh, and try to, I think it's such an important story and such an important story for, for Americans particularly, but also Mexicans to understand. I don't think it is very well understood, uh, but I also think that it's uh, very important because it, it, shapes, it shapes America's relationship with its Southern neighbor now. Yeah, and we're gonna get into that for sure. Um, before we get into really the, the content of the book, um, I'm going to put up right now on the screen, uh, a picture of the cover of the book, um, the cover that, that was on my version. And it's, a, it's a really, I mean, obviously covers are extremely important, uh, for books and, and the, this cover picture of a girl among what seems to be poppy plants, um, is like a, a really compelling arresting image. Uh, can, can you sort of speak to that, that picture where that comes from? I'm, I'm, I'm so glad, right, you are a very keen literary, I'm really glad you focus in on that, because it is, I agree, it's a really, really arresting, really extraordinary uh, picture, and I'm, I'm, I'm now going to kind of, uh, I suppose, uh, expose the publishing industry for what it is, so my book is published by two publishers, one is Penguin in the United uh, Kingdom, and one is Norton in the United States, now Penguin, I think, saw the book should be marketed as true crime, uh, and the picture on the front was of some poppies with a kind of red tint, which looks somewhat like blood. And then in the background, there were men with, uh, with, with kind of AK-47. So it had a very much the kind of image of true crime. I have to confess, that wasn't really what I was aiming for for the book. Now, the Norton cover, I think, captures the book far more because I think that what that particular cover demonstrates is the fact that is that mixture that we talk, we're talking about the drug trade, but in actual fact, this is simply a kind of agricultural product that we're talking about. The vast majority of farming, uh, what becomes heroin, morphine, uh, and various drugs, is done by women and children. Right? This is not an intrinsically violent operation uh, at all. Um, and the first um, uh, kind of uh, harvesters of opium poppies in Mexico were women and children and to this day they're mostly women and children so I really want to kind of express that that kind of innocence as well which goes along with with, with many of the people involved in the drug trade yeah and there's like this juxtaposition maybe between that innocence and, and that natural beauty um that kind of rustic natural natural uh beauty and 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 the violence which is described in the book 
um, and the fact that these two things are sort of linked up uh, in, a, in, a, in a certain yeah, way. No, no. Uh, I mean, absolutely. Although, you know, when you go to these the, these fields, whether they've been kind of marijuana or opium, they are quiet, rural, beautiful. I mean, a, a pop, poppy field in bloom is is truly stunning and can take in a kind of rich variety of colours, not only kind of red, but purple, orange. I mean, it is. And these places are right up in the up in the Sierra in in in, in kind of northern Mexico, mostly, uh, but right up in the mountains in these absolutely stunning uh, areas of natural beauty. Um, so, uh, you know, the, the, there is that kind of, there is a kind of rural idyll about the places in which these are produced. But as you rightly say, there is also a dark side to the uh, drug trade as well. Yeah. I, I took a little excerpt from your book here, which I'll read maybe just to give the, the viewer a sense of your, of your voice a little bit, um, which speaks to this, where you say that uh, in theory, the narcotics business was a man's game. But in reality, this is a skipping ahead a bit. In reality, women played and still play key roles. Men owned the poppy fields, but women and children did most of the harvesting. Their hands were small and steady enough to wield the blade, make the delicate incisions and extract the gum. And then you go on to talk about women chemists and you give examples and you talk about women mules. And so, yeah, I think that's maybe perhaps um, something that you feel gets overlooked when we, when we think about this history. Yeah, I, I think so, partly because of kind of mythology around this trade, which has been embraced by the popular media in the in the US, but also in the UK, also in Mexico, is that this is a man's business. It's highly violent. You do it with an AK-47 in your hand. Uh, and if you broach any kind of problem or debate, then you shoot first, ask questions later. Uh, but in actual fact, I found that that, well, that wasn't really the case. And the vast majority of people involved in this simply doing a job a pretty yeah. small scale agricultural job most of the time yeah so the, the subtitle of the book is it's the real history of the mexican drug trade so i'm curious what you mean by that i think this sort of gets on uh relates back to a little bit of what we were talking about just now how we have certain conceptions of what the drug trade is um but what do you mean exactly exactly by the real history well, real as opposed to what well, basically, um, I mean, this is not really my idea. I mean, it's been developed by certain sociologists, political scientists, cultural theorists, um, uh, um, studying Mexico and studying the drug war in other places, is that there is a mythology of the drug war, uh, which essentially sees uh, drug traffickers as innately evil, uh, uh, morally dubious human beings uh, who are intrinsically violent, uh, and they see the cops uh, and the authorities that challenge them as morally completely different. Good, good men occasionally forced to do bad things, but for the greater good. These people shoot, but only when shot at. Uh, and the one thing I want to do is get away from this very simple moral binary, which I think organises a lot of the popular presentations um, of the drug trade. So it's always about, I mean, I'm not sure if you've seen Narcos or Narcos Mexico or Sicario. It's always about essentially the story of a cop going after um, a, a, a relatively brutal um, crazed drug baron. Um, now I wanted to get away from that, but at the same time, I didn't want to get lost in opaque theory that the average reader couldn't understand. Um, and I still wanted to maintain a kind of readability, which you do find in a lot of these kind of true crime treatments. Now, 
I realized in the end, this is a very, very difficult kind of high wire to balance on. Because on the one hand, you don't want to just repeat these true crime stereotypes. But at the same time, you want to maybe adopt the, the language and the rhythms of true crime in order to appeal to a popular audience. I'm not sure if I you know quite how well I balanced it, but that was the that was my intention at least. I think you balanced it brilliantly. Oh, um, <laughs> so what one of the first things that struck out at me as I'm reading this, because it's 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 like you talked about, there's a balance between uh, erudition on the one hand and readability on the other hand. And um, I, I immediately began to wonder what goes in to writing a book like this, because um, the the amount of of research and documentary record record that you bring to bear uh, is is really staggering. So so like how long did this take you, and, and where where did this take you, uh, writing this kind of a book? Right. So uh, the first thing I should say, and I hope I said it enough in the acknowledgements, that uh, in 2013 I received a basically a kind of scholarship from the British government to work with some other researchers on a history of the Mexican drug trade. And we've worked on edited volumes and academic articles and policy papers. And we've worked in the kind of realm of policy and put on conferences. So I was working to a certain extent as a part of a team, right? So one way that I could collect as much data as I did uh, was working as a part of teams. So I had an amazing research assistant, a guy called Nathaniel Morris, who is also a brilliant historian of Mexico, um, who collected vast quantities of data from archives throughout Mexico. Uh, but also I had to do a fair amount of that collecting myself. So yes, it did take me to the, I mean, it took me to the border cities. So Ciudad Juarez, Tijuana, where I spent kind of weeks uh, sifting through judicial files. Uh, it took me up to, um, I became kind of fascinated by this key turning point in the drug trade, which no one has ever written about, which is the 1960s. So the 1960s, Mexico becomes the go-to hippie drug market, right? And it's like, it's like they find oil or something. It's a vast kind of economic step change in the drug market. It goes from basically involving a handful of villages up in the mountains to involving vast swathes of rural Mexico. So I became really obsessed by this. Now, in order to find out what was actually going on, I had to go and track down old hippie traffickers. Now, one of the great things, no, not great things, but one of the uh, things I noticed is that white hippie traffickers don't tend to be in jail um, uh, as much as maybe other people who were trafficking drugs. Some of them are, and some of them did time, uh, but most of them are out pretty wealthy and living on the West Coast. Uh, many of their kids are running legal weed farms using their dad's expertise. So I, I frankly, using, again, help of, of some really generous journalists and other academic, I tracked them down. I went to, you know, I, it wasn't that difficult. I went to Santa Barbara, San Diego, LA, and met these group of kind of fascinating old hippies who would tell me their stories. One thing I really find fascinating is, is, is the stories that they told uh, they tell from an entirely American perspective. So then I would go to the villages or the drug traffickers in Mexico and ask them, well, what were your opinions of these, these Americans and try to kind of slot these two stories together. So there was a huge amount of triangulation involved. You'd have to kind of get, you know, a, a story from, you know, talking to somebody or picking out of a document and then you'd have to link it up with two or three other um uh, sorry, uh, two or three other documents or stories in order to get the kind of full picture. Um, so I think never before have I attempted to kind of tri triangulate so much data uh, to try and put stuff together. So that was the real 
that was the kind of backbreaking uh, empirical work that, yeah. that I had to do. Um, yeah, absolutely. Fascinating. Um, I, I make it sound like it was really miserable. It wasn't. It was enormously <laughs> enjoyable. I got to meet some really fascinating people and some terrifying ones. Yeah. 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 That comes across. Um, I'll say this. Um, this might be a naive question. And, and, uh, but, but I mean, I think for most people, certainly from an American perspective, it might be naive because it's like an American perspective kind of question. Um, you're, you're sort of shocked personally. I mean, shocked and horrified by the way the, the book sort of ramps up in terms of its level of violence and, and destruction kind of, you know, uh, of the drug war um, that's caused. And, and as, as an American reader, let's say, um, I think it's impossible not to be affected by that um, and be a little like, like shaken by that. And so my question would be, did you have that kind of uh, experience as well? Um, sort of digging into parts of this, you know, narrative, uh, which are, which are so dark, for example, you even have pictures in your book and, and, and some of the pictures are, are, are completely graphic you know, yeah, how was that uh, on you? Yeah, I, I, I confess I had I had very um, mixed thoughts about producing some of those pictures, particularly the one I think you're referring to of, of, right. of a dead trafficker. Yeah, um, yeah. And I was kind of dubious about it. But I mean, I got it out. Of, uh, it was a DE agent who sent me that. He said, I don't want to talk about it, but here are two things that might be of interest. Now, the first one was a New York Times article. And I thought, he's sending me newspaper articles that I can get hold of in the New York Times anyway. What's the point of this? And I didn't open the second attachment until about three months later. And I opened it and it's an incredibly graphic picture of a trafficker with half his head missing. Uh, but it was basically taken by a morgue attendant that the DEA paid to take a photo of that trafficker because they wanted to make sure that he was dead. Um, Sane, and the reason that I published this was 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 really to kind of show that the DEA was was certainly knowing and, and and often quite complicit in a lot of the early violence of the drug trade. So in terms of did it shock me? I'm not sure if it necessarily. I'm not sure. I mean, having lived in Mexico for a long for, for a fair amount of time from the 2000 onwards, um, and I think I've started another interview with. I mean that. I think one of the, the things that really shocked me is I had, I had a local pub uh, in my wife's hometown of Oaxaca called La Farola. Brilliant pub, about 100 years old. I mean, a traditional cantina, absolutely beautiful. A, an armed group called the Zetas turned up one day and just blew away the owner for not paying protection money. So I turn up, you know, the next day for my beer and they go, it's closed and it's never been open since. So I lost, you know, pub owner, but also a friend and a kind of confidant, and a bloke I used to chat to. Wow. So you've been personally uh, affected by this, yeah, by this history, so, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, you know, fortuitously, I'm very lucky. Uh, my wife's family has not been affected by some of this violence, but it's impossible not to be affected by this violence. So perhaps I, I, I um, uh, yeah, so perhaps I was in some way somewhat prepared, but I suppose, okay, two, two parts of the violence really shocked me. The first was how early it came and how it was mostly directed by the Mexican police, the so-called PJF, and by the DEA. My assumption, frankly, was that in the early 1970s, maybe drug traffickers were killing each other over you know, a kilo of coke or you know, a, a, a plantation of marijuana. But I had no idea how policing drugs changed during the 1970s and just how prevalent the use of torture and murder were 
by the authorities. That that was deeply shocking to me. Yeah. I, I knew that the, the, the police and the secret services in Mexico killed leftists. Uh, and I think we're all fairly aware that there was a, what they call a dirty war in Mexico that probably killed somewhere in the region of 3,000, 4,000 communist guerrillas or supposed communist guerrillas. But I think what really surprised me is quite how violent the drug war was. And in actual fact, in the book, I say, I think probably the death toll is somewhat similar uh, to that of the dirty war. The second thing that I think really, really shocked me, and that's something I've learned over the last five or six years of working with refugees running away uh, from areas of drug violence, was how much this violence was touching what we might call everyday people, people not involved in any way in the trade, right? And it's something that I end the book with. What's going on in Mexico is not about drugs anymore, right? It's about kidnapping, it's about extortion, it's about stealing petrol, it's about sex trafficking, it's about organ trafficking, it's about human trafficking. These are now the industries which are kind of motoring a lot of the violence. Uh, and I think it was really, I found it very, very shocking talking to these, you know, mostly poor avocado families, uh, avocado farmers who are fleeing what I call cartels, but are effectively mafia groups shaking them down for cash and killing them if they don't pay so i think that those two those two moments i suppose really shocked me so that's a, a long and, and slightly uh, emotionally over <laughs> yeah overcooked answer to your question um but that thank you yeah I, it'll be we'll, we'll we'll probably touch again on some of those dark uh threads um but but a, a, a less dark thread um that stood out to me towards the, the beginning of the book um, cause your book takes us through like, like epics of time. Um, so this is, uh, in, in like in the 1930s, there was a character that stood out to me. I think you explicitly referred him as being ahead of his time. Um, but he was a fascinating, a doctor, Leopoldo Salazar Vin Vinegra. Is that, uh, Vinegra? Yeah. Very good. And, um, he, he believed that, uh, in a link, you're going to, I'm going to phrase this as a question because you're going to correct this when I get it wrong. But he sort of saw a, a linking up of between, uh, between drugs and mental illness and capitalism. Um, can, can you talk to that a little bit? Yeah. So, so I think this, this again, really surprised me. I knew this guy was a, um, uh, a fairly forward thinking uh, doctor who worked at the kind of drug rehab unit in Mexico when it started up during the mid 1930s. And he gained a kind of reputation in, I suppose, hippie circles in Mexico and slight kind of, you know, radical circles in the United States. What I didn't realize and what I think people didn't really know about was quite how linked his ideas about drugs were to his Marxism, right? So he believed uh, effectively uh, that the drug trade uh, destroyed the lives of addicts two times over. On the one hand, the vast majority of addicts were the very poor, uh, and that addiction was simply sating uh, their kind of deep despair over their situation in life, right? Um, so, and again, this kind of ties up with what we know now about addiction, right? I mean, the, the vast majority now of, 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 of studies of addiction show there's nothing actually genetically uh, in us that makes us addictive personalities or not addictive personalities. It's much more to do with actually childhood trauma and the social uh, situation that we find ourselves in, right? So he, again, he's ahead of his time on that. But his other, and I think brilliant 
kind of um, observation was also that the drug trade, the illegal drug trade, is an exploitative capitalist business where effectively addicts are beholden to people selling them unbelievably expensive versions of the drug they're addicted to. So, he, but he said he had a brilliant socialist answer to this, right? Effectively, the state gives you drugs. What do you do then? You completely undercut the traffickers, right? Um, so, so this was, I think, as I say, an incredibly kind of brilliant solution. So all the drug traffickers in Mexico for a six month period were put out of business. They, they were forced to giving away their drugs for free to try and re-addict people to their version of the drugs. But the state was the state was literally giving away narcotics itself and they were much better quality and they didn't kill you uh, because they were cut with all sorts of horrible um, uh, materials. So you're right, he was a, a truly extraordinary character and I think one that, that um, has been really sadly forgotten. Um, I suppose the other thing that really uh touch me about that is I, I i managed to get in contact with his family um who are setting up their own private archive uh to him and he was involved in loads of fascinating stuff kind of um attempting to help street children uh after he worked on kind of drugs and he set up a kind of his own version of a, a kind of emancipatory school for mexican street kids he was a really kind of extraordinary person and his family has really tried to kind of uh take up his legacy really um and i can advise anyone to go to look up leopoldo salazar vinegra archive and you can see loads of his uh his works his newspaper columns his uh and some of the stuff being translated into english so it's fairly easy to read as well yeah i, I have an excerpt here a short excerpt from the book um which just touches on some of these uh points that you're making um in salazar's opinion money was at the heart of most mental illnesses in fact, capitalism itself was a form of insanity. The rich in their pursuit of money were suffering a God complex. They became psychopathic in their irrational search for more and more wealth. Um, and then skipping a bit where basically the only way out of this, he suggested, was to stop this mass psychosis at its source, um, basically at capitalism. Um, I thought that was, that was really fascinating. Yeah, well, in, in fact, I was kind of asked, it's something I was uh, considering pursuing because it seems that there were people, maybe not in traditional places, but there were people who were attempting to wield together Freudian um, psychoanalytics with uh, kind of Marxism during the 1930s and 1940s. Um, strangely, this didn't really happen in Russia um, or as far as I can make out in kind of Eastern Europe, but it was happening in the global South. So I thought that was kind of fascinating. It was happening in Argentina and it was happening in Mexico, it would appear. And it's something that you know, no, no one's ever really looked into it as far as I can make out, although this is not, I have to say, my specialist subject. Yeah. So in addition to being a history of uh, this, this drug trade and, and you have maps where you talk about sort of the evolution of uh, the region over time and, and the drug trade over time, uh, from an American perspective, you get the history of uh, the America's war on drugs. Um, and so for, from a high level view, you know, just, just taking a step back, um, as an American, uh, what what went wrong with the war on drugs? Like, wh why was that such a failure? Uh, oh, that's a <laughs> that's a tough question. Um, so, uh, um, right, uh, why was it a failure? Well, effectively, I think it makes no logical. I mean, effectively, it makes no logical sense, right? Um, so, 
what you do uh, when you um, arrest a person and maybe confiscate a kilo's worth of cocaine is effectively on a very small scale, you rise the price of cocaine, right? Because there's less cocaine on the market, right? So all you're doing with every successful act of the drug war is effectively raising the price of this illegal product. Now, what does that mean in the country that produces that product? Well, it means that more people are incentivized to get involved in it. So for every successful drug war act, you're effectively incentivizing more poor people in Mexico or Colombia or wherever to go and grow opium or grow weed or transship cocaine, right? So there's a logical fallacy at the core of the, the, the war on drugs. Beyond that, I mean, you know, uh, beyond that, okay, and other things, what real incentive, and this is something I go into in the book, and I'm sure you're going to bring it out, what real incentive actually is for there for the Mexican government pre-2000 to crack down on the drug trade? This is an enormous uh, financial resource for them, and if it's controlled, it's not effect really affecting their citizens, because effectively, Mexico has incredibly low levels of addiction and drug taking, right? So all this is, is, as I say, it's a bit like having oil on your doorstep, right? So the war on drugs by pushing up the value of these drugs, it not only incentivized Mexican farmers to grow the stuff, but incentivizes the Mexican government to take advantage of this enormous kind of financial windfall, right? And there's only, you know, the, the Americans can kind of cajole you in public and they can offer your army a few more guns and a couple more helicopters. But this is, it's nothing compared to the, the money you can get from drugs. Um, yeah. so, so, so I think that was another, um, you know, I, I think there is this, I mean, this is something we can go into as well, but we often, and I think this is part of the drug war mythology, we think of those Mexican authorities taking money from drug dealers as being corrupt. Now, I'm not denying a lot of them are, and a lot of them use that money for private wealth. But I think certainly from the 1910s onwards, a lot of them used it to build schools and roads. And even during the 1960s and 70s, and this is fairly unpalatable, they were using it to arm uh, and to uniform uh, and to buy jeeps and helicopters for the army or for the police. Right. So they were building the state with this drug money. Now, is that corruption? It's corruption from an American perspective. From a Mexican perspective. You know, it's like having oil. It's it's, it's, it's your like source. Of, yeah. It's your wealth, your nation's wealth source. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you 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 mentioned you explained uh, this the self-reinforcing property of the economics of the drug trade. And, and I feel like that's sort of a pattern in, in, in the book or in the drug trade broadly, where um, you, you have these self-reinforcing uh, feedback loops. So if, another thing that comes to mind is the way the violence escalates. Um, as, as the crackdown, uh, the violent crackdown, you know, uh, from the American war on drugs escalates, uh, there's, there's a retaliation in kind. And, and um, you, you talk about the way uh, the, the tactics used by I guess, DEA officials to um, create divisions among uh, the different drug uh, groups and producers uh, sort of creates an infighting and a, a, an explosion of violence that sort of spills over into all sorts of other areas. 
Right, um, I'm really glad you brought that up because, yeah, well, you've read, <laughs> read this much carefully than most academic. Um, so, um, uh, yeah, you're absolutely spot on. So this is something that I think I um, I completely underestimated at the beginning. My, my impression was that what was going on in Mexico was that different criminal groups were fighting against each other because criminal groups are intrinsically violent and if they have an argument over something, they'll probably take out guns. Right. So that was my, my assumption was that, for example, you know, Chapo wanted to take drugs through uh, uh, through one place. Somebody else was taking drugs through that place. They had a fight. They put their men on the street. They killed each other. Drug dealers are violent. But in actual fact, what I found out was behind what looked like and what are presented as divisions between these cartels, in actual fact, you find out that one of these cartels, at least, is working on the behalf of the authorities. And this is how you wage the drug war, right? The drug war is, is the strangest kind of criminal um, or, or kind of uh, anti-crime activity, because effectively there is no real victim. OK, you're going to tell me there are addicts of various drugs, but addicts of drugs don't approach the DEA and say, I was sell, sold this heroin, it's not very good, right? They never say that. So how do you actually go apart, uh, go, uh, how do you actually um, um, take on and take down these drug trafficking networks? Well, you have to get inside them and you've got to create informants. You've got to turn people. Now, what does this do? This effectively turns drug trafficking networks against one another because somebody is informing on somebody else. And you see this again and again uh, over the last 20 years that effectively either the DEA or the Mexican authorities have got an informant inside one cartel or another. Uh, and this has created a division within that cartel, which has then created a war between these cartels. And one of the cartels normally has the state on its side, right? So I know this is quite complicated, but the, the example I give in the book in two, for, for 30 years, Chapo Guzman and a, and a group called the Beltran Labour Brothers had worked together, right? They were part of what is known as the Sinaloa Federation. They were best friends, they were compadres, they kind of went to each other's birthdays and parties and all that. They were really, really close. But the DEA got near Chapo, right? And got near Chapo's men. And he was forced to give up somebody. And I think it's pretty clear he probably gave up one of the, the Beltran Labour brothers. So what does that do? It rips up 30 years of trust and cooperation and friendship. And the two groups go after each other. Um, and it looks like Chapo's group is de facto supported by the Mexican authorities and the DEA who want to get Beltran Labour and use Chapo's information to do that. So yeah, the, the war... This, this kind of fight of cartel between cartel, it, to me, is it's somewhat of an illusion. It's basically just the drug war. Yeah. The war of the authorities against the cartels. Yeah, yeah. I think that's really important. And I, I mean, yeah, I hope, I hope the viewers um, follow think about that. that. Yeah, think yeah. about that and follow that. And, and I think that's part of what the, the book sort of uncovers in such a, you know, what's so, you know, unintuitive and the sort of the, the shocking thesis at the core of the book it's how muddy sort of these uh, these distinctions get and these boundaries get. Um, and, and for example, again, like, you know, 
something I don't think I've, I've mentioned it until this point. Um, maybe you mentioned it towards the beginning, but your book deals extensively with torture. Um, there's a lot of torture um, in this book. And, and am, I, am I correct? Do I, am I remembering correctly um, that, that even uh, you know, DEA officials, people that we, we, we assume as an American are, are the good guys in a way of this narrative, uh, engaged in all sorts of uh, uh, completely uh, grotesque you know, forms of, of, of unconscionable torture and violence. Uh, so, um, th there was, there's certainly a fair amount of evidence that they did. So I managed to get hold of this stuff is, is completely covered up, right? This is stuff is never admitted. What I did get hold of is certain former DEA agents who were involved in grand jury, uh, investigations who did make some fairly bold claims about the use of torture, um, I also spoke to journalists who were working down there, and I did speak to some traffickers who claim that DEA people were either involved in the torture or in the room when they were being tortured. Um, but I think the role of torture, again, is something that I massively underestimated. Um, but again, it, it's, it's, I think you've got to understand, it's absolutely integral to the war on drugs. How do you take down effectively a businessman who never touches drugs? All he does is he puts some farmers in contact with a lorry driver, in contact with a warehouse owner, in contact with a buyer, right? He's on a phone that you'll never get hold of. So how the hell do you arrest this guy and bust him for being a drug trafficker? Because frankly, from the 1950s onwards, that's what the big drug traffickers were. Well, what you do is you either torture his underlings and get them to turn informant, or you torture him or one of his you know, allies who turn on him, right? So torture has become, and there's a brilliant work done by um, uh, uh, two sisters, actually, uh, Beatrice and Anna Maria Magaloni. Beatrice is at Stanford, Anna Maria, I think, is, uh, in, in Mexico. And they've been looking at, uh, at kind of torture, contemporary torture in Mexico. Uh, the studies are extraordinary. They find 60 to 70% of confessions are extracted through torture, right? Today. Now, one thing I think that maybe they, 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 they have missed, and I think, well, I hope this book kind of shows, is this all starts in the 1960s and 1970s. This all starts as soon as the DEA goes down in force and says to the Mexicans, sorry, arresting a thousand petty peasants is just simply not enough. You've got to take some down some of these big guys. They start torturing people in order to do that or shooting them. Um, so, so, yeah, I think that is absolutely... Again, that is incredibly integral to, to, to the war on drugs in Mexico. And I think perhaps more in America than people might give it credit for. Yeah. In, in America, you have a very, very large stick, which is you're going to be, you know, if you don't give up whatever your supplier, you're going to be in jail for 50 years. Right. I mean, that's the stick in Mexico. It's a genuine stick. Right, right, right. Uh, yeah. Um, I just want to read another quote that stood out to me uh, in the context of, of the way we frame and think about the drug war. Quote, DEA officials had given it a name, the Guadalajara cartel. By the end of the decade, the term had moved into general use. The Americans had invented another enemy. Again, it was useful shorthand. It was a simple way to refer to a definable foe. The term cartel immediately brought to mind OPEC price controls and the perversion of good old fair-minded 
Anglo-run capitalism, and it promised victory, destroy the cartel, and you demolish the drug trade. So can you speak to the way language, you know, even uh, plays a role in sort of framing the way we think about the drug war? Oh, yeah, right. Uh, so good to speak to somebody who is a kind of literature expert. This is really wonderful. Um, yeah, I mean, I think this is, again, something I really underestimated at the beginning. I think I was a bit... Um, I was I was the fir uh, first I'm a political historian and a social historian I'm not really a cultural historian I don't necessarily uh, ascribe an enormous amount of import to the terms that we call things but I think studying the drug war I came to the conclusion that in actual fact names were really really important so for example the name cartel uh, which is banded around from the mid 1980s onwards has is immediately bad capitalism Right. America's capitalist. Capitalism is good. We're fighting, you know, we're fighting the Soviet Union and the, and, and the um, we're fighting the Cold War. So they need to find a kind of evil form of capitalism. So they come up with cartel straight from the OPEC cartel. Right. The oil cartel. So they go well, bad capitalism. So they create uh, an enemy. And I think the other thing about creating this enemy is that it looks defeatable. If you say a cartel is just a group of people, as soon as we arrest them, the whole plate, the whole thing will fall apart. But in fact, it's not that. It's a market ecosystem. It's supply and demand, right? It's a load of addicts who need coke or crack or heroin in the United States. It doesn't matter how many kingpins, how many farmers you arrest. Unless you arrest 130 million Mexicans, it ain't going to go away. It's a market ecosystem. Um, now, I think what's interesting is I'm not going to deny that today cartels do exist, because what effectively organized crime groups have done is they've taken that name um, and they basically say, OK, we are these evil cartels. Uh, but now they're not so much involved in drugs. They're involved in, in, in all sorts of other other crime. And now they're not so much cartels in that they control prices of drugs like a, like the OPEC cartel controlled the price of oil. They're cartels in the sense that they try and control territory and try and exploit all criminal activity in that territory. So cartel was something invented by the US police and it was frankly at the time bullshit, but it is something that has then been appropriated by Mexican organized crime groups to mean an organized crime group that tries to dominate territory uh, and extract it. It basically it means mafia. Yeah, yeah. All right, we're getting, we're getting towards the end here. Um, just last last maybe question or two. Um, but one of the things that that jumped out at me surprised me because there's there's an amazing narrative that we're following, you know, and it, and it's building, you know, it's 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 building on on the history and it's building on itself. Uh, and we get to a point towards the end of the book where you talk about state capture, um, which is. I guess a kind of capitalistic power, uh, which is in rival with the state. Is that is that accurate way of, of thinking about it? So effectively, the term state capture um, uh, is used in political science, and it normally means it normally is used to refer uh, to private enterprises, um, particularly in Eastern Europe and Russia, kind of capturing bits of the state. But what I I, I, I effectively slightly abuse the concept here, right? And what I'm actually talking about is that the drug traffickers take control of shaking down 
other drug traffickers. So rather than be policemen going along and saying to a drug trafficker, right, you're selling 10 kilos of cocaine, give me, you know, 10% of that, the earnings. Instead, it's drug traffickers doing that. They go up to the traffickers, they track down the peasants, and they uh, uh, extract money out of them. So, yeah, state capture is about the, the drug traffickers taking over the kind of policing part of the state. Yeah. Yeah, so that, that was pretty uh, shocking, uh, interesting, and, and startling uh, to read about. Uh, last questions here. Um, uh, let me see here. This, this story's not over, right? The book ends in the present day, but it's not over. Um, what, what, what should we think about in our, in our own politics about how this book is relevant like today? What, what is the, the political import you think um, that this that this history has in thinking about our current political moment. Uh, so uh, okay, I'm going to. There are lots of things to think about, but I think two things maybe kind of come to mind. One is what is the Mexican president doing at the moment? So the Mexican president is a guy called AMLO, has had an extraordinary opportunity. Um, uh, he for two years, Trump uh, was in charge of the White House, and he didn't frankly give a shit about drugs. What he did care about is tracking down very poor Central American migrants. And he basically told AMLO, I'm not sure if he told him directly, but he said, catch me some Central American migrants. And frankly, I don't care what happens to the drug trade. And I think AMLO used that opportunity to attempt to back away from violent confrontations with the cartels. So that is currently going on. Uh, and I think... I mean, it is very difficult to say over the medium term what, what effects this will have. Because his other ploy was to effectively give more opportunities and more economic opportunities for the poor of Mexico. Now, this policy has been massively hit by economic problems and then COVID, right? Mm -hmm. So on the one hand, I think his instincts are probably good going after traffickers doesn't work. On the other hand, he really hasn't been able to bring down murder rates by spreading wealth in any um, uh, uh, in any particularly great fashion. Uh, so I think that there's the kind of current uh, politics. In terms of, uh, you know, what should we think more kind of broadly? How should we think about drugs in our country, for example, in America, in terms of ending the war on drugs and, and thinking about addiction uh, differently? I think we should think of an addiction as just a medical problem uh, and, and, and not even, you know, for many people, drug taking itself is not addiction. I think this is something, again, we should we should split up. There's a wonderful book out. I'm not sure if you tried to track him down by a guy called Carl Hart, who is a, a Harvard uh, scientist, but also a relatively frequent user of hard narcotics, uh, who wrote a, a, a recent book, which kind of explained that nowadays, Yes, yes, no doubt some people get addicted, but the vast majority of people, even who take things that are, you know, for me, deeply worrying, cocaine, heroin, morphine, even crack, uh, that then that a lot of the talk about addiction is massively overplayed. Uh, and that in actual fact, addiction has, as I say, little to do with personality or genetic traits and much more to do with childhood trauma, psychological trauma, things that can be treated. Um, so I think that America has to think seriously, not simply about legalizing and decriminalizing, but actually treating people who are taking or addicted 
to drugs and also thinking about you know why are they taking drugs right, right. i mean there is a reason it was incredibly sad right but a hundred thousand people died last year of drug over it's, it's a breathtaking amount that i still can't really get my it's basically like the town i live in being wiped off the map right so so i remember in the 1970s and i write about this in my book i say heroin doses were, were, were up they were really shocking 1500 heroin overdoses a year you got 100,000 just last year right so so whatever the war on drugs is doing it's certainly not stopping addicts overdosing overdosing it's producing yeah. incredibly crappy quality dangerous narcotics that an increasingly desperate underclass are taking basically because there's no medicine and there's no psychological care in yeah. Mexico, in, in America for the poor. You and really in one hand, know. yeah. Yeah, it's it's because there ain't no shrinks and there are no doctors for 10, 20, 30% of the American population. Yeah, and, and it went hand in hand with criminalizing that population and locking yeah. them up and starting, you know, mass incarceration. Yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. So that's the flip side. Yeah, the yeah. flip side is the hundred, the, 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 the end of two, well, so it's like, it's not, we now know it's not half, it's about, what's it, 20% of two million or so people in jail are in jail for drug crimes, the vast majority of which are really minor, like being addicted to it. Yeah. Sorry, I got, I get angry at the end. I understand, I, I yeah. In, I should say, I, should, I lived in America for eight years, so although... I come to talk to you with a, an, an irritating, you know, British accent. I, I do have some vague knowledge of what was going on. Um, family in America. That's what yeah, yeah, not not at all. Um, I guess. Yeah. Any, anything else you can leave us with? Um, you know, people should go out and I recommend the book. Obviously. Uh, any 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 final thoughts uh, before before I let you go? Well, I, I just want to say. Um, I'm I'm just really chuffed that a you read it. Uh, b you didn't come to this as a you know uh, as a kind of I don't know, this is maybe a rude, but as a kind of narco nerd, right? You came to this as a person who's interested in kind of history and literature and and, and that kind of stuff. Uh, I'm really glad you enjoyed it. And also I'm really um, kind of fascinated by the way you read it, because I don't think you read it like a, a, a kind of historian. Uh, and I really, really enjoyed talking to things about, you know, language and, and the way things are expressed and the way you term things, uh, because I never get asked those questions. And I'm, I'm so kind glad. of interested in that than, than dates. <sighs> So thank you. Thank you, Ben. Thank you so much. Uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you. No, not at all. Pleasure's all mine.